Good morning to everyone. Please take God's Word and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. Again, that is the book of James, chapter 1. We are in the midst of a section in which James addresses the subject of trials. It begins in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And the section ends in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Last Lord's Day, we considered verses 2, 3, and 4. Today, we're going to look at verses 5, 6, 7, 8. Next Lord's Day, being the first Sunday of the month, we'll pause and we're going to go to the book of Psalms. And then the second Sunday of the month, we'll come back to the book of James We will look at verses 9, 10, and 11, and then one more Sunday after that, verse 12. Four sermons on this section, basically 10 verses. You might think that's a lot. I don't think it's a lot. Um, It's intentional. I want to ensure that we understand Uh, What James is saying in these verses, and equally important, I want to make sure we are applying it to our lives. I was challenged a couple of weeks ago, challenged by something I read in a book. I want to share it with you because it pertains to this text. Uh, The author, here it is, let me share it. The author pens the following... It is hard to think of a generation in history that has suffered less than mine. It goes on to say, I am a Western millennial. I had to look that up, millennial. I'd forgotten exactly what that refers to. Uh, Someone born in the 80s, early 90s. And so he identifies himself as a Western millennial, so Europe, North America. Western millennial. That means my life has been almost entirely free of the things that make life on planet Earth awful. Bloody wars, infant mortality, ethnic cleansing, tuberculosis, earthquakes, child trafficking, smallpox. Yet the strange thing is, my generation struggles with the problem of suffering more, not less, than most of those Christians who have gone before us. That's interesting. I have experienced far, far less pain and difficulty in my short life than almost anyone else in any period of history. Yet I probably struggle with it philosophically, emotionally, even theologically, more than the countless women who have lost babies in childbirth, lost husbands in the war, and then died before they even reached my age. It's like the less we have suffered the less equipped we are to deal with it. That gave me pause to reflect, to think, to evaluate. 
what he is positing in that brief paragraph. But at the end of it all, uh, generally speaking, I had to agree with him that as a generation, 80s, 90s, in comparison to Christians historically, generally speaking, generally as a rule, uh, we have suffered far less, and yet we struggle with it far more. I want to make sure, therefore, that we are equipped. I want us as Christians to make sure we are, let's put it this way, uh, theologically prepared for trials. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm taking my time getting through these verses. Yes, there's a lot here for us to understand. And yes, there is much here for us to learn by way of personal application. And so pastorally, I want to make sure I'm equipped. Pastorally, I want to make sure you are equipped. And so last week, we honed in on verses 2, 3, and 4. I basically summed up the content of those verses as follows. One sentence. How we respond to trials depends on how we look at trials. And so how are we to respond? James tells us it's a commandment outset of verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, make sure you do not err here. James is not suggesting that we are to consider trials in and of themselves a cause of rejoicing. No, 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 no. Trials are a cause of pain, they are a cause of grief, they are a cause of sorrow, confusion, everything accompanying them. No, James' point is this, that even in the midst of that pain and grief, we are to count them all joy. Why? Because of how we understand them. What does he go on to say in verse 3? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Therefore, we have this absolute certainty that our sovereign God, who is king over all things, has designed those trials into which we fall during the course of our lives. We may not always understand the bigger picture, but we understand this. We are there by his appointment. He is there with us, and his great grand design is what? Our spiritual maturity as he makes us more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How we respond to trials depends entirely on how we look at trials. I concluded last week by giving you a little pastoral advice, a little pastoral counsel. Here it is again, just by way of summary. Four points. Number one, in the midst of trials, we must behold Christ's cross. If we're going to count them all joy, we can never lose sight of the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and what it now means by faith to be one with him and to understand that God now, as a believer, someone who is one with Christ, God now treats me Not according to my performance, but according to his mercy. Therefore, I'm able to count it all joy. Secondly, we must make sure we follow Christ's example. 
for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And we have a bottomless supply of grace and strength in our forerunner, the captain, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the one who has been there, the one who has suffered as we have suffered, the one who has endured trials that we will never know, but he is now at the right hand of his heavenly father, and by the spirit of God, he equips and he strengthens us. Thirdly, we must seek Christ's honor. In the midst of trials, we must remember that we are glorifying him. We are glorifying him by declaring that he is more valuable to us than all that life can give and all that death can take. Fourthly, we must serve Christ's people in the midst of trials. Oh, the help, the encouragement. Again, yes, the strength that comes from empathizing with others, from seeking to understand the inner world of others. And even in the midst of our turmoil, even in the midst of our difficulty, seeking to be instruments through which God works in their lives. Pastoral counsel, much more could be added to that. But pastoral counsel, as we seek to obey that command in the second verse, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, we're not fooling anyone. This is difficult. We aren't, there's no point in pretending. Uh, there's no point trying to put some sort of slant on that commandment to soften it, to simplify it, to make it easy. Let's just call a spade a spade. This is difficult, exceedingly difficult. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James knows it, and so it leads him immediately into our text for today, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now at the outset, as we get going, you got to notice a couple things here in verse 5. If we don't notice these, we, off we can go on our merry way down the wrong path. First thing I want you to notice is this, is how Paul gives his commandment in the fifth verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now we hear that, we might think to ourselves, I might think to myself, okay, what Paul is saying is this, um, I need to evaluate myself. Well, I actually think I'm a pretty smart guy. I actually think I'm pretty clever. I don't need that much wisdom. The cup is 90% full. And so all I need to do is ask uh, the Lord to make up the remaining 10%. And so he's just, he's just sort of, Paul's just, James is just sort of introducing here a hypothetical situation. If perchance you happen to need wisdom, ask for it. If that's how we interpret it, handle this verse, we've completely missed it. James is being polite. That's what he's doing. I'm not going to be quite as polite. James, what James is saying is this. Look, you. Yes, you. You're foolish. By nature, you're foolish. I'm foolish. You need wisdom. 
And the smartest thing you can do right at the outset is go to the only source of wisdom, God himself, and ask for it. He doesn't want to be that blunt. And so rather politely, oh, if any of you lacks wisdom, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We all know we do. We all know we don't have an ounce of wisdom among us. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. That's the first thing we need to be clear on. The second thing we need to be clear on is this. What does he mean by wisdom? I think a lot of us err here. Wisdom. It means being pretty smart. It means being able to figure stuff out. And so what James is saying is this. Okay, I'm in the midst of this trial. I want to be able to answer the question, why? I want to be able to see the big picture. I want to enter into the throne room of God and be able to see why this is happening, what's going on, where it will end up. And so what I need is wisdom. That is not what James means. It is true in the Bible, at times, occasionally, the word wisdom is used in reference to our intellectual smarts. And so Solomon excelled in Wisdom, meaning what? He figured a lot of stuff out. But more often than not in the Bible, that's not what the word wisdom means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the fear of the Lord makes you clever? It's not the point of that text. The fear of the Lord means what? I start living as I'm supposed to. That's wisdom. Wisdom in Scripture, by and large, is moral. Wisdom is behavioral. As I've stated it in the sermon notes right at the top, what is it? Wisdom is living God's way. That's wisdom. Wisdom is picking up the Bible, figuring out who this God is, what this God wants, adopting a biblical worldview, and orienting the life accordingly. That is wisdom. It has nothing to do with being smart. It has nothing to do with being clever. It has really nothing to do with the cognitive. It has to do with the behavioral. Wisdom is living God's way. Now, I hope you're asking yourself, well, how do you know that? Well, you know that when you just simply read the rest of the book of James. Turn over, for example. We'll get there in a couple months' time, soon enough. All things in their turn. You look over at James 3, and he really belabors the point here. We'll unpack the context, the greater context, once we're there. But for now, just look at what he says in the 17th verse. He's making a contrast here between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Wisdom from below, wisdom from above. James 3, verse 17, listen carefully. But the wisdom from above is... First, and so here comes a list. He has turned on the hose in the backyard. The water is about to come gushing out, pouring out, and he's about to rhyme off a number of virtues. The wisdom from above. Wisdom is first. What? It's pure. What's that got to do with the intellect? It's peaceable. What has that got to do with being smart? It's gentle. I don't see the connection between that and being clever open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. There you have James' definition of wisdom. Take it, 
run with it, go back to chapter one and shove it back into verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, I now know what he's talking about. And I'm going to bring up all those expressions behind me here on the screen to make sure we're really getting it. There's the sermon title, right? Seeking Wisdom. You've got eight expressions in that verse, James 3.17. I think really what you've got, however, are six marks of the wisdom from above. Six characteristics of the wisdom we are supposed to pray for in the midst of trials. There's the first mark. Wisdom is... It's pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God? It is to minister to widows and orphans in their need and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so wisdom is pure, meaning what? It reflects, it mirrors it displays, it shows God's moral goodness in our actions, our pursuits, our words, our relationships. You can add to that list. Well, why do we need that kind of wisdom, purity in the midst of trials? Why do we need to pray for that? We need to pray for that because trials will tempt us to compromise God's goodness. For the sake of expediency. In the midst of trials, we will find ourselves thinking what I have penned at the bottom of that slide. My comfort is all that matters. My ease is all that matters. Getting out from under this trial is all that matters. And I am prepared to use whatever means at my disposal, whether or not that is pleasing in the sight of God. God's goodness out the window. All I'm concerned about is my ease and comfort. You think of Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. How much easier Joseph's life would have been if he had thrown God's goodness out the window and succumbed to that. He resisted. Where did the man end up? In prison. And so there is this need for purity when tested, a need for wisdom from above to make sure the decisions we make are formed by God's goodness. The second expression, wisdom is peaceable. What does that mean? Well, those who are peaceable, this kind of peace, it dispels grudges, rivalries, factions. You get the idea. Why is that needed? in a time of trial, simply because trials will tempt us to resent others, which leads inevitably to what? Envy, bitterness. Those two are the twin pillars of what? The root of what? All contention. In the midst of a trial, we may not use these exact words, but we will be tempted to think something like this. She over there, he over there has it so much easier than I do. And when we start to think like that in the midst of trial, what are we then laying the soul bare to? Seeds of envy. The root of bitterness. Envy and bitterness will always vent themselves. They can't shut up. They will always vent themselves. It will either be subtle 
or it will be not so subtle. And the result will be what? Contention. You show me a church that has turned in on itself, and I will show you invariably the seeds of envy and bitterness. It is at the root of all contention. And we need to be watching for it in the midst of trials. Hence the need to be praying what? For wisdom from above, that which is peaceable. You look at the third expression. Wisdom is gentle. Well, gentleness dispels harshness, unkindness, abruptness, roughness, crustiness. On and on and on it goes. No, this kind of wisdom from above is gentle. It is thoughtful. It actually stops to think before it says something. Not just what is said, but how it is said. It actually stops and considers, how does my behavior impact others? Why is that so needful in the midst of trials? Well, trials will tempt us to think only of ourselves. We will become narrow in our focus. And maybe perhaps even arrive at this conclusion, oh well, I've got an excuse. Uh, I can justify my crustiness because look at what I'm going through and that person just needs to understand it. That person should just recognize the burden I bear and put up with my gruffness. Oh, the need for wisdom from above and the need to beg it from God's hand, a wisdom that is marked by gentleness. The next characteristic Wisdom is open to reason. What does that mean? It means simply it responds to authority. Put in slightly different terms. Uh, it means being willing to listen, comply, submit. Why so necessary when we find ourselves facing trials, having fallen into a trial? Because trials will tempt us. Oh, they will sneak up on us and they will tempt us to resent God, God's word, and God's people. And when we have succumbed to that, one of the most common ways in which it is expressed is what? Oh, the church doesn't care. Or even more often than not, the elders don't care. Uh, he doesn't care. She doesn't care. In actual fact, they might care a great, great deal. It might be, however, that what they are saying to you, what you actually need to hear at that moment, you're not open to reason. You're closed to it. And therefore, you turn in on yourself. The resentment flourishes. And all of a sudden, the church is at fault. He's at fault. My neighbor's at fault. Grandma's at fault. Everyone else is at fault. Oh, the need for wisdom. To be open to reason, the counsel of God, something we are to beg again from his hand. Wisdom is full. I put these two together. I think they form a couplet. Wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. That is to say, it acts generously, compassionately to others, especially those in need. Why do we need it in the midst of trials? Because trials will tempt us to focus on ourselves. Just narrow, again, our focus. Life is all about the burdens I bear. Life is all about my burdens. And empathy for everyone else goes out the window. And soon following on the heels of empathy, mercy, that is compassion, and good fruits, good works. And the last I've put together, I think these two form another couplet. Wisdom is impartial and sincere. Meaning what? It banishes all double-mindedness. It's real. It's authentic. 
Why do we need that in trials? Because trials will tempt us to simply go through the motions. Trials will tempt us to hypocrisy. Trials will tempt us to be partial toward others and insincere in our approach to God. Nothing else matters because I cannot see beyond the trial in which I find myself. Is that verse, that prayer request, you can take that away, Ricky. Is this prayer request coming to life for you? I trust we're beginning to understand exactly what is in view here. I think many of us in the past have approached this request, again, merely defining it cognitively. What I want is to be able to understand it. What I want is to be able to answer the big questions. What I want is to be able to see the beginning from the end. It isn't what James is talking about, folks. Read the book of Job, 42 chapters. By the end of it, guess what? He still doesn't have an answer to the question why. He still does not have an answer to the question why. That is not the wisdom that God is offering. God is offering what? Purity. He is offering what? Peaceableness. He is offering gentleness, reasonableness, fullness of mercy and good fruits, impartiality and sincerity, that when I find myself really under it and the waves are passing over my head, and there is no light at the end of the tunnel. I have fallen into a trial. The first words that are to be out of my mouth from my lips are simply this. God, give me wisdom. What is it I am asking him for? I am asking him to enable me to live in a God-honoring way in the midst of those trials. Wisdom. Wisdom is pure. It is peaceable. It is gentle. It is open to reason. It is full of mercy and good fruits. And it is impartial and sincere. That is the request. Now notice, I trust this hasn't escaped your notice. There are actually two requests in this verse. And even as I say those words, I realize that's not the best way of stating it. It's misleading. It's not that there are two requests. It is that James explains two ways of praying. That's putting it better, in plainer terms. He identifies, he, he explains two different approaches to prayer. And so first of all, we have the right way of praying. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, verse 5, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But, verse 6, let him ask in faith. That's the first way of praying. It is the man, it is the woman who prays in faith. What does this mean to pray in faith? Many of us think we know what this means, but sadly many of us do not. One of the great evangelical fallacies of our day is what? To pray in faith means I really, 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 wait for it, really believe. It is to name it and it is to believe it. Therefore, claiming it that I have absolute confidence 
that God is going to give me what I want. Again, that is an evangelical fallacy. That is not biblical faith. It's not biblical faith. When James says we are to pray in faith, what does he have in view? It's very interesting to note, by the way, the parallels between James' epistle and the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to get into that now, but lots of parables. And my mind goes to the Sermon on the Mount now, and it goes to the Lord's Prayer itself. How does the Lord Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven. And so there is our approach to the Almighty. We remind ourselves, He is in heaven. He is the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the blessed and sovereign potentate. He, 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 he is, dwells in unapproachable light. And so we approach Him with just a little bit of reverence, don't we? Acknowledging who He is. And understanding that we come as finite, sinful creatures. And yet we come to our Father who is in heaven. Because we rejoice that there is a mediator, one mediator between God and man, the man, man, the man Christ Jesus. And by his substitutionary sacrifice, he has dealt with the penalty of our sin. And as a Christian, he has cleansed me of my sin. Therefore, I ought to enter God's presence confidently. Not by any claims I can make, but because I am with the Lord Jesus and he is there interceding on my behalf. And so I come to my Father who is in heaven. And what is my first prayer request? Hallowed be your name. That's all I care about. That's the prayer of faith. My great concern, my chief desire in life is to see God revered. It is to see God feared. It is to see God glorified. Well, how does that happen? How is that brought about? Well, it brings me to the second and third requests. Hallowed be your name. And my Father who is in heaven, your name will be revered when your kingdom comes. Therefore, your kingdom come, your kingdom of grace right now, as Christ rules and reigns at the right hand of his Father, and he rules and reigns by his word and his spirit. Whether you realize it or not, he is reigning right now, and his kingdom is coming right now. That as we submit ourselves to his rule in our own lives, as the Spirit of God works upon us through the Word of God, the only means by which He will ever work in your life. And we're brought into greater subjection to Him, His kingdom comes. As the gospel is proclaimed, perhaps someone here this morning repents of their sin, believes in the Lord Jesus, Christ's kingdom has come. And so we're praying for the extension of the kingdom of, His, of grace, and we're praying for the coming of the kingdom of glory. The trumpet blast, the final and last shout of the archangel, Christ's descent and a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh God, I come before you, my Father who is in heaven. Oh, may your name be magnified, glorified, revered. And here's how that will be done. It is as, as your kingdom comes. And secondly, as your will is done. Not my will. As your will is done. As I, as the people of God, learn to submit to your will of decree and learn to obey your will of precept, your precepts, your commands, all that you've given us in Scripture. That is what it means to pray in faith. 
And it means, therefore, any other request I bring to my Father who is in heaven. I ask that request. I seek it from him insofar as his name is hallowed through the furtherance of his kingdom. Insofar as his name is feared through the doing of his will. And I can come to him in faith and I can recognize that this request for faith is something he has commanded me to beg from his hand when I find myself in the midst of trial. Therefore, I understand that this wisdom serves that ultimate end. The spreading of his kingdom and the obeying, the doing of his will and therefore the glorifying of his name as wisdom is implanted in me in the midst of my trial and I actually see that which is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. And then the light starts to go on and I begin to realize maybe this is why I'm in the trial to begin with. This is his immediate purpose for me. This is his great design for me. And so that's the first way of asking. It's the right way to pray. We pray in faith. But James says, look, there's a wrong way to pray. There's a wrong way to come before God. Verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting. What does that mean? It means, well, I don't really, 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 really believe God is going to give me what he's promised. That's not what he means by doubting. He goes on and explains himself. For the one who doubts... Is like a wave of the sea, we've all seen it, that is driven and tossed by the wind. He further elaborates in verse 8. This person, this man, he is a double-minded man. You know what it literally means? I don't even know if it's really a word in Greek or James just makes it up. Is a man of two souls. This is a double-minded man. Complete, unstable in all his ways. You see, someone who prays in faith is basically someone who wants to please God. Someone who does not pray in faith, this double-minded man, is actually someone who simply wants to use God to please self. That's it. Yeah, I kind of believe in God. Yes, sure. And uh, I, I follow God. But, you know, when it comes to uh, my prayers, requests, what it is I want God to do for me, in the final analysis, I don't really pray in faith. What I have before me is not really the hallowing of God's name. What I have are what I perceive to be my own self-interest, and I'm just kind of hoping I can convince God to get on board the ship and give me what I think I actually need. Oh, that is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, it's Augustine. Augustine in his confession, so early church father, back we go in time. Augustine, brilliant book. It's autobiographical of his conversion. Most of the book describes his pre-conversion life. And Augustine, he, 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 I think he has his tongue in cheek as he says this. He's reflecting on his pre-conversion life, what he was like, and even in his approach to God. And he basically sums up his prayer life as follows. Lord, make me pure, but not yet. That's the double-minded man. Oh, yes, Lord, make me pure, but, but not yet. 
maybe five years from now, six years from now, eight years from now. That is a man who is unstable in all his ways. That is praying with doubting. That is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Oh, Lord, here I am in the midst of this, this trial, and I want you to help me. But ignore the fact that I'm in a relationship I really shouldn't be in. Ignore the fact I'm dating an unbeliever. Ignore the fact I'm indulging sexual fantasy. Ignore the fact I've, I've developed an emotional attachment to a married woman. Ignore all that and help me in the midst of my trial. That is a double-minded man. Oh, Lord, here I am. Waves all about me. I've got this big, big, big problem. And I need your help. But uh, ignore the fact that I am full of bitterness. Ignore the fact that I haven't spoken to her in almost four years because she said something that got my nose out of joint and she should have known better and, well, I'm just holding it against her and I'm justified for that. Oh, but help me in the midst of my problems. That is a double-minded man. Oh, Lord, here I am in the midst of difficulty. Here I am, don't know which way to turn. Again, the proverbial saying, no light at the end of the tunnel. Help me. Sucker me. Come to me. Oh, but just, you know, just ignore the fact that uh, up until this point, I've been pretty much living for myself, greed. You know, I'm just trying to collect toys in life. That is a double-minded man. Two completely different ways of praying. Praying in faith, God's glory in view, the individual who wants to please God. Praying what? Not in faith the individual who merely wants to use God to please self. I must ask it before I move on. It might very well apply to but one person gathered here right now. Let me ask you, are you a wave of the sea? Are you a wave of the sea? Are you a double-minded person, a man of two souls, a woman of two souls, completely unstable in all your ways. I will tell you why. It's because although you say you love God, you still love something more than God. There is still something you will not let go of. You can name it. It may be multiple things, but there is still some idol that ultimately you are living for. And that makes you a person of two souls. Do you know what you need? You need a Mount Carmel moment. Let that sink in for a moment. You need a Mount Carmel moment. Do you remember that? The final showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And there they are on Mount Carmel, two altars of stones, two bulls slaughtered, put on the altars. And the prophets, 450 prophets of Baal and that uh, orgy of self-mutilation. Baal, send down fire from heaven. And there is absolutely nothing. And then Elijah's simple prayer request, boom, down comes the fire and it consumes everything. Do you remember, do you recall Elijah's words to the nation of Israel? How long, how long, how long will you go limping between two opinions? Are you limping this morning? How long? Enough already. How long will you go limping between two opinions? If Baal is God, follow him. Get off the fence. If Yahweh is the living God, 
follow him. Maybe you need a Mount Carmel moment. You know, you put it in slightly different terms. Maybe you need a Revelation 3, Church of Laodicea moment. I wish, oh, I wish, says the Lord Jesus Christ, the Church of Laodicea. The church, I wish, oh, how I wish. You were either hot or cold. This double-mindedness, well, because you're not hot or cold, what am I going to do? I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. The double-minded man. Choose you this day whom you shall serve. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? It is harsh. But understand this. If I'm speaking to someone, you acknowledge it in your heart of hearts. You confess it to God. And I promise you, there is a fountain of mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. That will cover, wipe away even that double-mindedness, that lukewarmness. That is my invitation. That is my command to you this day. Choose you today whom you will serve. But get off the fence. Stop being like a wave tossed here and there, unstable in all your ways, and acknowledge that there is abundant forgiveness for all who come to God through Christ Jesus. Two ways of praying. And then notice, secondly, in response, there, there, there are two responses. So two different ways of praying. This, this isn't difficult to put together. Well, depending on how I pray, that's going to kind of dictate how God responds. And so if I pray appropriately in faith, well, actually, let's just hold that one. If I, if I pray inappropriately, if I don't pray in faith, if I'm like this doubting person, the one who's like a wave of the sea driven here, tossed there, double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, how will God respond to me? Verse 7, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. You mean God doesn't always answer my prayers? No, of course not. You mean God just doesn't wink at my sin and gives me what I want? Definitely not. If I approach God with a hypocritical spirit, you think of the television at home and your little remote control, he just kind of hits the off button. Off. Oh, here he goes again. Off. Here he comes, this double-minded man. Off. And on and on and on it goes. That person, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. We approach God in a hypocritical spirit. And there is nothing in response. James is going to take us back there. He's going to take us back there in the fourth chapter. And he's going to say simply this. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Case in point in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Now, when we come to God the right way, we approach him in the right way, we seek this wisdom in faith, what is God's response? In a word, everything. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, James, note two things in his response. Who, middle of verse 5, gives generously, that's the first, and here's the second, to all without reproach. And so God will, when we come to him in the midst of trial with that request, God will answer generously. He will answer, answer bountifully. 
He will give us more than we could ask or think. Not only that, he will give it without reproach. Why is that like music to my ears? That I can come with this request repeatedly, day after day after day, and realize that God will answer it. He will most certainly give it to me. He will give it generously without any reproach. I simply think it's because we find it difficult to give without resenting those to whom we give. We have limits. We have limits. And so I park at Walmart and I go through the front doors and there's the cheerleading team, a bunch of 10-year-olds asking for money because they're going to Austin for some competition. What are you going to do? Don't want that pack of wolves following me all around in Walmart. So you come with a bill or two, right? There you go. You do your thing in Walmart. You come out the other door. And there's a, there's a man, a little verse there maybe. And he's ministering, working among uh, some sort of recovery program. And he's made little keychains or something. He's selling them, looking to fundraise. Okay, yeah. You're walking back to the, the car and the phone rings. You don't know how they got, they got your number. But they're fundraising for cancer research. Well, who's not going to give to cancer research? Sure beats the 10-year-old cheerleading team. And then you get home, and as you pull into the driveway, you notice they're already at the door. There are the Boy Scouts, and um, they're collecting tin cans, the food, right? I need to ask them the next time. I'm still unclear as to what, what's that, what that's for. But of course, you're going to go in and out with the tins of peas and corn or whatever, and you give them to them and send them on their way. You get inside, there's the mail, you open one thing, it's a World Vision asking for this. It's a disaster relief over here, and it's the Diabetes Association in the next one. And then your neighbor's at the door. Can I borrow your table saw? Borrow my table saw? You never returned the last time you borrowed. It's in your garage. And on and on and on it goes. Am I the only one? At some point we reach what? A little bit of a limit. Now, here's one of the most dangerous things we do. We think God is like us. He is not like us. He isn't anything like us. That's James' point. You need wisdom. You need to live in a God-honoring way. It is to walk in the way God has prescribed in his word. And oh, you're desperately going to need it in the midst of trials. Here's what you do. Go to him, ask him, ask him in faith. Oh yes, my father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give me wisdom. And here's the thing. He's going to give it to you generously, abundantly, and there will be no limit. No limit. You can't exhaust him. You can't bore him. You can't drive him away. He never, ever gets fed up. Oh, what a tremendous promise. What a tremendous encouragement when I find myself going through the same problems day after day. And there is no end in sight to what I am going through. And I'm at an end of myself. And I don't have the answers to the big questions, why and everything else. Oh, how assuring it is to know that I rest in the palm of my Father's hand, that I am in the furnace, as we saw last Sunday. I am in the furnace by divine appointment and design, and that God has an immediate plan for me in that moment, in that trial, and it is to honor Him by seeking from His hand divine wisdom. 
the wisdom that is from above. Oh, and what an assurance I can go to Him time after time after time after time. And I can never exhaust His grace. I can never exhaust His mercy. Here's one from way back. Perhaps you'll remember the art exhibit. I think I've shared this with you. I'm sure I've shared this with you. The art exhibit in southern Ontario near Niagara Falls. Local artists, art exhibit. And uh, the conveners ask different local artists to contribute artwork to this local exhibit. One man shows up with his oil painting of Niagara Falls. Drops it off, leaves. And as the conveners of the exhibit are putting up all these pieces of art, all these works, uh, they're giving a title to each. And uh, this artist didn't leave any title with his. There it is, Niagara Falls in all its glory. And uh, the man responsible for this particular piece of art, as he stares at it, pulls out a pen, gets a little piece of paper to stick there under it, more to follow. More to follow. Why? Billions of gallons of water pour over Niagara Falls every year. And guess what? There is always more to follow. More to follow. More to follow. I think that's James' point. I think we're getting at the heart of the matter now. That yes, as we struggle to count it all joy, when we meet, fall into trials, we have this promise set before us. There it is, black and white. It is ours to claim. It is ours to bring before our Heavenly Father. It is ours to bring before, yes, the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. Oh God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom and absolute assurance that he will answer in ways beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine according to his good and perfect designs for us as a loving, heavenly Father. Our God, enthroned in glory above, we praise you for your word, this great deposit and treasure that you have entrusted to us. And again, we thank you for the Spirit of God who enables us to read it, comprehend it, and apply it. And so again, we beg your help. We pray that you would give us that spirit of wisdom and of knowledge and understanding. And our Father, we pray that as we wrestle with all that comes our way in life, and as we strive, however feebly at times, to glorify you in the midst of difficulties, that you would give this, us this wisdom of which we have spoken this day. We do pray that Christ would rule and reign in our hearts, our lives. We entrust ourselves to your care. And our Father, we pray that your will would be done among any unbelievers gathered here today. You know them by name. You know the very number of the hairs upon their head. And we pray that you might deal with them, that you might deal with them plainly, you might deal with them tenderly, bringing them to a knowledge of their sin, their rebellion against you, and bringing them to see that there is hope in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one mediator between you and us, in whose name we do ask it. Amen.